hello. Hey, um, so how are you, Robin? I'm good, Emily. So why are we here? Well, we're doing a podcast called Can I Steal You for a Sec? <laughs> to talk about critical theory. Awesome. And this is this is technically our second episode, but mm. it is the first episode with actual Bachelor content because right. the episode premiered on Monday. <laughs> the entire body of theory of structuralism. You're going to know everything about You're gonna it. You're going to be Roland Barth at the end of this. Yeah, so definitely like listen and take notes. Um, There'll yeah. be a test. <laughs> it's going to be on the GRE. So, okay. Yeah. What is structuralism? Well, I'm going to be honest. I struggled with structuralism a little bit um, in our like intro to cultural theory class, but after that experience, I'm confident that I kind of know what it is. So okay. Ferdinand de Saussure, and I'm sorry, everyone. Oh, no, that's great. I don't speak French. Um, I speak German, so I apologize. His like seminal piece was Course in General Linguistics in 1916, which is a great time to be alive. Um, really, it's... Is it? <laughs> well, for, for some. For some. For some. <laughs> It really started off the body of theory of structuralism. I would say that the upshot for this body of theories that language is not a substance but a form or a structure and his big contribution um, is this notion of sign and signifier signs and representations are contextualized within a system i.e a structure so we see that the relationship between signifier and signified is arbitrary language representations have no intrinsic value only when they're placed in a structure do they actually mean something but he was a linguist so don't linguists think that language is really like neurological biological so how can how can we say that it's all based on these sort of arbitrary rules post-structuralism <laughs> was going to help us with that but for de Saussure and for i guess like us as cultural theorists if we're moving away from like strict li- like linguistics to literary theory and cultural theory this is the notion that human cultural practices um texts and language generally need to be understood in relation to this broader and overarching universal system so you know now we've moved a lot away from structuralism but these kind of basic tenets that images texts representations need to be contextualized within a system to understand their patterns and like interrelations i think is is pretty cool and we can do a lot with it i think i agree that structuralism i think the struggle with it is that it is so broad like there is there are some writers theorists that would be who would be on a syllabus for structuralism, but it is so much. What I'm more familiar with is sort of going away from this, the really the specifics like the lang and parole of language to more mythology right. and myth and what would be called second order structuralism or second order uh, semiology. So I'm more familiar with um, Roland Barthes, who uh, contributed a lot, not just to structuralism, but to a lot about literary theory and criticism. So I'm, and I know you are too, more familiar with his work, Mythologies, uh, which is a longer volume, but he wrote sort of a chapter essay called On Myths. So the word myth can be confusing because I think people most maybe know the myth like a Greek myth, which maybe is like a made up story or a magical tale, whereas he's not really talking about it that way. A myth is more about, well, he calls it, he says it transforms meaning into form. It's sort of an intellectual shortcut, the way that we we, that mythologies are created around concepts or words 
or images. And so I'm going to quote some things. The mythical signification, on the other hand, is never arbitrary. It is always in part motivated and unavoidably unavoidably contains some analogy. Excuse me. (laughs) Really, for me, a myth is um, an idea that has been created through culture that has can, that is very culturally specific. So mythologies and myth uh, would be different for different cultures. What I what I actually recently um, what I really read this for I was doing a project on propaganda, and myth is very much used in propaganda. It's not the same thing. I think propaganda uses myth, but myth is not always propaganda. Although Barth really was uh, cautious about how myth could be used to influence the masses how the dominant group can do that. And he named a couple ways. And the one that I really kind of, um, I mean, the one that really spoke to me was about here, it erases history. So it makes people, it's kind of the idea that things have always, things are a certain way because they've just always been. There's no question. It's kind of like a circular way of thinking. Like, why is x like this well it's because it is like this there's no it erases history it also he he says that it does something called the quantification of quality which i'm interpreting as confirmation bias it's the easiest way to economize intelligence um, about what things what we know about it he used um some wartime propaganda um so an example would be like uncle sam creates a mythology of America and what values stand for. And then the other thing is, and actually we're going to get into this next week, it's um, about identification um, and rejection of the other. So confronting the other. And once somebody confronts the other, they either want to absorb it into their ideas or completely displace it. And we've seen that through history a gazillion times. And in this episode with Catherine. Oh and, yes, and Katie. No, not Katie. There's, there's too many people. <sighs> there's this episode, too many K names, but... and I'm not gonna lie. I, um, I don't know everybody's name. We'll do um, our best, and I don't think I care at this point because That's I know right. they're gonna leave soon. So they're merely are they are the women's signs or they they're signs and they signify. So they're the signifiers. Yeah, I think that structuralism like can be these like looking at structuralism as like myth making or like moving into more of like a literary application is really interesting to think about like the mythologies of the bachelor and the sort of like structuring elements especially with um like the visual cutting that we see in this episode Mm -hmm. there's a lot there and structuralism can kind of help us deconstruct i guess we're jumping ahead but these different parts correct me if i'm wrong but i'd say a lot of cultural and critical theory especially structuralism comes from literary theory and literary criticism but i think that actually makes it almost easier to apply because literary is a text reading a text and then with popular culture and cultural theory we posit that everything is a text that any sort of media or anything presented to us any product yeah well even in mythologies there was a quote i thought that was really interesting like for the bachelor that barth is um he says that quote speech is, is this kind of message it can consist of modes of writing or of representations not only written discourse but also photography cinema reporting sport shows publicity all of these can serve as a support to the mythical speech yeah so he so there thank you because he himself was saying that this can apply to any sort of visual and i wouldn't necessarily limit that to art but any sort of everyday object or um generally popular culture which is part of the everyday things that we come into contact with yeah so have we covered structuralism as we're we've pretty much yeah is okay. ever is everyone out there do they 
Any questions? We have a live audience. Yeah. <laughs> you can like read these texts again if you have yeah. questions, but this is just like the baby explanation of structuralism. So maybe don't use what we said on your comps word for word, but it's up to you. And I will say, I, I mean, Roland Barthes is also, I think, very prominent because he's also a very um, entertaining writer. So he's also mm-hmm. very literary, I would say, and kind of creative in his writing about things. So he has a way of words. So I think it's actually a really interesting read. Well, and just like my last plug for structuralism, which I don't really like, is that I do appreciate it because it allows us to like demystify cultural practice and demystify language. And I, like this was kind of, I guess, the first theory, like cultural theory to allow us to like scientifically like analyze juxtapose different cultural practices and different texts as in these are elements that we can you know we can look at different cultural practices in the united states and in germany and we can look at these because they are like parts of a greater structure so and that everything isn't just i don't know a jumbled culture so and then one other way, I just thought one other way to understand is that when I taught um, an intro to popular culture, this is one of the first things we did. And this is what we talk about a lot with advertising, mythology and symbolism and advertising and how advertisers kind of use this um, in the way that Barth was saying to create sort of a dominant metaphor about masculinity or consumerism and um, things like car commercials and conquering nature. So those, so just to give a little bit, that's kind of, if you see somebody in a class doing that, that would be kind of the exercise that you would do um, in a more basic level. Let's Let's get, (laughs) let's get to, now we're going to talk a little bit about the episode and we're going to apply structuralism. So relating structuralism to the episode. Well, first we'll just in case you didn't watch it and you're listening to this podcast because you want us to recap for you, this was a weird show. It cut back and forth between like the limos and like the packages and like the cocktail party to these horrible viewing parties in Dallas, Texas, Lansing, Michigan, Salt Lake City, I think, and Los Angeles. Did you say Denver? Were they in Denver also? No, they were in Salt Lake City because it was where Becca and Garrett like kissed once i don't know why <laughs> but um, oh, i cut that out um i mentioned denver because i was listening to another podcast who pointed out that denver is kind of becoming the new hub for like bachelor nation colton's from denver colton's from denver a couple other people are from denver and a couple people have moved to denver Ugh. some other ba- yeah so nothing against denver <laughs> i've never been listeners in denver sorry <laughs> sorry i felt ill like this was a really it darked me out. It just, yeah. I, I was watching it live, not to brag, I was watching it live, <laughs> and I texted you at about 8.45, and I said, Yikes. literally, the episode is not on yet. I, I don't think we, I really want to go into, like, the, the beat by beat of this nonsense, but I yeah. do want to, I, I do want to talk about how it framed mm-hmm. the idea and cre- and sort of contributed to this mythology. So there's a really um, good book that's on the syllabus. It's called, oh, sorry, the name of the book is Reacting to Reality Television, Performance, Audience, and Value by Beverly Skeggs and Helen Wood. Love Skeggs. Wood's great, too. What, what do you have against Helen Wood? I just, I love Skeggs. You just don't know her. Okay. Sorry. Helen Wood, don't sorry, add Helen us. Lennon. Yeah, sorry, Helen Wood. Don't, don't write us. Uh, so what I wanted to say was they talk a lot about uh, the book and especially the chapter, the first chapter, talks a lot about how kind of the the main areas of reality TV and how it intersects with media studies and cultural studies. And I just want to read a quote about um, staging because I think it's common knowledge now that reality is not real in the way that it's not docu- a, documenta- a 
uh, uh, documentary. <laughs> it's what they actually called post-documentary. So this is what she says about staging and fakeness. The more the audiences become used to the idea of the constructions of reality, the less credible genuine attempts at a social intervention become and the less filmmakers will be attached to a sense of social responsibility since it is no longer expected of them. So what she means is that we know it's fake. They know it's fake. Uh, that there's a slippery slope between uh, the reality and what we're actually seeing. And I don't think anybody actually believes that The Bachelor is real. In fact, it's it's there's a host. It's it's actually a game show if you think about it. But the myths that are on it are still 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 built up as real. This idea of love and journey and the idea of what does engagement mean and what does marriage mean. Right. Um, and no less than three. I think there were three proposals on yeah. the reality show which is just real like i'm just i'm getting nauseous thinking about it it just was a real bummer and i didn't enjoy it but from a cultural perspective i think you said something about um the framing of it and how it uh like it sort of tells the audience how they should act yeah i think that like especially with the viewing parties like which is very was like new um like in this premiere is that this type of of like structuring of this entertainment format it like informs the viewer how to watch and so that enforces this group dynamic and we're framing the show in such a way that we have these um as in bachelor nation like using the language of the show and then especially if you're watching live you don't have control over you know speeding up the commercials and so there really is this type of disciplining the viewer um to accept this type of corporate entertainment um, and that entertainment is is doled out in like these small segments. So just the very structure of the show is is beyond the viewer's control, which is very interesting. Yeah, and it tells you it, nobody can react or do a reading of their own. It already tells you how you're supposed to be reacting with this frenzied fury. And it's a little bit like the Hunger Games at some point because – I mean, nobody's dying that we know of, but people are going through emotional turmoil and we're watching it like, to give an even older reference, like The Running Man. Oh, I don't, you don't know. know it. <laughs> I'm actually a baby. <laughs> He's a baby. So just this idea of, I mean, it's its not a very, it's been in sci-fi before, just the, this idea that people's pain becomes entertainment or people suffer for entertainment and people forget that they're real people that they're watching kind of like when the cameras followed in Ari when he broke up with Becca and you know that I mean I don't I don't want to say it's unethical but it, it it crosses the line between you know what is entertainment and what is the reality that we are accepting and want to accept and if people wanted knew it wasn't real why not just use actors you know we're still looking for that melodrama and that sense of realness but I digress because we're yeah. going to talk about simulacra in a little while. Yeah, that's so. definitely. I mean, remember the like Cinderella pumpkin, her elimination, because I think that's like a great, mm -hmm. I don't know, example of the blending of like the real and the imagined where we see and also these like simultaneous like proposals, like you were saying, mm -hmm. that we can't tell what what's real and what's produced anymore when the show formats it with these viewing parties. But again, mm -hmm. we're, we're doing structuralism. So that's. So back to structuralism. Right. So what did we see in this episode that like relates to structuralism? So the one thing that this word we're going to hear ad nauseum is virginity and Colton's a virgin. I'm already tired. I know. Uh, I'm exhausted. His virginity exhausts me. Definitely. Definitely. And 
I don't think it's a big revelation to say that this is why he was picked or a big reason or this is how I mean, the bachelors always have to have a hook, right? Like, I don't know what Ari's hook was. But he was white. They were like, yeah, God forbid we pick Eric. Yeah. And oh, Eric. And there's always this this and Ben Higgins. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't even remember. There was like Farmer. Although he's right. a murderer. He's now. a murderer now. So <laughs> manslaughter. manslaughter. Yeah, yeah. Definitely check that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that they need a new hook because they are repeating the same thing and that people expect you know, part of the genre cycle is that it needs to be repetitive and it needs to be accepted by the genre, but you need a slight twist. So this is the difference that he's a virgin and this makes it new and this makes it more dramatic. And I think we we talked a little bit on last episode about kind of the idea of virginity and how it's okay for him because he's a traditionally attractive man um, and that also he's a man. But I don't feel bad for him, but it always makes me a little bit uneasy when there's a cultural idea of like when virginity should be lost. I mean, it's it's uncomfortable and it's, you know, losing it too early for, you know, especially for women can be frowned upon. And then this late adult virgin has another, you know, not great things attached to it. And it's a real, it's a bummer, you know, I just, because I think of people, even in my life who I know are looking at this and then feeling bad about themselves. And virginity is, is a, I mean, I know it's a, phys- we're talking about a physical act, but it's a cultural construction about what virginity means and what it represents. And it's also, so um, it's created a myth. It's created a shortcut. Like if if you, you know, if the word virgin or if you call someone a virgin, it's kind of an insult. Well, I don't. I, well, it's interesting, too, to see like how this like I, I don't not even like the text of virginity, but just yeah. like this like specter of virginity is then like rendered into like these different puns, like throughout these like limo entrances throughout yeah. the episode, which is fascinating. And like we see some woman like actually like taking his v card like a cart that has a Ugh. v on it or like the popping like the cherry balloon i dove under my couch yeah like so cringy or even i think i want to say her name demi talking about virginity like is i don't like do you want to eat a vanilla cupcake or do you want to eat a vanilla cupcake a chocolate cupcake and a strawberry cupcake and i i guess i don't know like what represents what i think like like women are cupcakes um i'm not really like i don't think demi's very clear on like what she saying, she has studied uh roland barth's at probably not. and if you have demi we're sorry, sorry but right in um yeah i don't know just like these binary oppositions between like pleasure and desire which are not like necessary binary this like transformation of this like physical act of like consummation to like this physical act of like consuming whether it's i don't know the cherry balloon or like these cupcakes i found really fascinating there is the cinderella she came in the coach and i think i think at the most obvious level she's referencing the fairy tale of cinderella and i think more the disney but that also is a myth about um being saved by a prince coming to the ball being chosen waiting to be chosen by a prince Things like the, I mean, the most obvious was the woman coming out as the sloth. Oh, I can't again. Yeah, this was real hard for me to watch. It was the viewing parties definitely made this less fun because they were disciplining us and punishing us as the yeah. viewer. Yeah, the sloth was not good. I don't know what I know. Everybody, I think that either the producers help them find a hook, like find a gimmick for sure. But I don't know what I don't know what the meaning was behind it because is she referencing? The shark slash dolphin 
nonsense from last episode think, or sloths are kind of hot right now they're the hot animal i think it's because like, like he moves slow so she was like oh i'm a sloth wow sloth i slow. did not get that apparently uncomfy the bachelor signifiers are too advanced for me yeah they're i mean it's just like chris harrison's like structural world we're just living in it honestly so some other things like obviously just a rose in itself and a rose and i think bart's talks about that that a rose he actually does yeah is love uh you know there's a whole idea like if you get a white rose uh, that's a big rejection well not really it means you're a friend and rose is on valentine's day and all those like movies from the 50s or 60s where a man shows up on a to a date with a dozen roses and a box of chocolates or something. Mm-hmm. Um, still happens on the Golden Girls, just letting you know, because I'm <laughs> rewatching it. I found interesting, I love the packages of women, and I felt like we didn't get enough packages, because I love them. Like, who did we see? We saw... What do you mean by packages? Packages, so this is me using the, the long or the parole of bachelor nation i don't know um packages parole uh, parole um (laughs) where like you get the um if you're lucky you're a woman you get filmed um your family's introduced you usually like frolic on the beach and it's like i guess like maybe 30 seconds to one minute and so the viewer gets like introduced to you and your story usually if you have a package it means that you go on far enough not always but you know the producer saw fit to like give you that extra airtime. So we saw some packages of women like Cassie, Demi. I think it's, and I asked you that because I think it's interesting that we, the viewers, are using the insider language of The Bachelor. Like package, that's kind of like a production term or Definitely. like an insider term. And we're using it. And again, we're, I mean, I'm always obsessed with kind of the thin line between reality and not. But it's just, I mean, it's another way language is used. And contestants or bachelorettes, one-on-one time and the these rules that are made about who gets one speaking of who gets one-on-one time and how that works and this idea that you're supposed to come in and everybody has equal time uh where Catherine, aka dj agro (laughs) she's a she's the villain she's going to be the villain right now and i don't i think colton is going to have to keep her she's going to be like a producer's pick um she was interrupting um and kept asking for more time which you know, again, we know it's kind of inside inside baseball with the production of it. And what is, I mean, is there anything about structuralism there, about language used? I don't know. Yeah, I think like the rules, what's interesting, like applying structuralism to like the text of The Bachelor is that so much, like this is obviously, it's not a, a text text in the way that it's like written. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these, I don't know, like different parts that we're interpreting, they're invisible. And so they require this new level of, of like subtle like analytics to find these parts of of what is one-on-one time what is like this interruption and so it's interesting to read read out the structure of the bachelor when so much of it is designed to be smoothed over airbrush hidden so we don't see we don't see the actual structure that's coming together that the producers want you to buy into this seamless narrative and feel like this is a myth a universal um, you know, story that you can buy into as opposed to what it is. It's very deliberately structured. It's it's produced and manufactured, structured in the way that we would like structure a building. Do you think that so for us who have been watched several seasons and at this point, I mean, it spans so long that you have viewers that have come in at every part. I mean, I think it's like 17 seasons. Would you say that maybe part of it is that The Bachelor has created its own language system? 
our own mm. system of text in that we already know, I mean, a little of this is is genre and form, you know, that we know the language and saying, can I steal you for a sec is, is a language. They always say things like journey, fairy tale, which are other kind of mythical um, associations with them. But within the show, we've created a language and we know when people step outside of that language. And somebody asking for more time is at the same time going against that language, but also creating a villainy language. And that's how we know and it's kind of signifies that. Yeah, I think that for sure, The Bachelors created a new sort of a system of signs for yeah. us, like within reality television that is now replicated in other like cultural products. Like um, I haven't watched it, but I've like read about it, X on the Beach and some other shows, Bachelor in Paradise, like these spinoffs so that this system of signs is replicated elsewhere, not even within like the like american reality television world but we have bachelor spinoffs in where yeah definitely australia yeah australia like i think germany um yeah. oh god i would love to see yeah that. japan <laughs> so it's interesting to see how has the bachelor created this new system of signs for us to to like relate to one another or is the bachelor corporatizing commodifying and packaging the system of signs of how we white heterosexual relationships that are um that we could say that are like universally normative in some ways in the western world i mean i think i talked about this last time that i think we're going the bachelor is is like this neo-conservative for sure thing about courtship and heteronormativity um something you said just made me think of something oh i just because you're a a baby Mm -hmm. i have to share that there are shows that are direct variations on the bachelor like flavor of love and i right. love new york and rock of love my personal favorite so this format has been replicated a lot and i think it's because it's part of that structure that it's maybe a language that we know about finding love on reality or finding love it's that age-old question about media and popular culture is this a reflection of what we think about um attraction and desire is or is it creating is it influencing us about what desire and dating is and i think i mean i know the answer is both and right that there's not one answer that um there's different publics that can feel this and we know um that audiences are not dumb and that they have negotiated ways of doing this you know i think for myself i think like this is so dumb why would anybody date this way but it still creeps into my consciousness about what is worthy and what is valued yeah, I think for me, it's just really interesting to to watch this and see, especially with like the language they were using to talk about like the viewing party in Lansing, Michigan, mm-hmm. and how this show is a system of signs, but it it signifies this white American myth of heterosexual nuclear capitalistic fam- um, like family and fantasy. Um, I think Chris Harrison, like they picked Lansing, Michigan. He said like, oh, middle of America going to the heartland. So it's interesting to see the the public that they're calling upon, you know, is also represented in this viewing party specifically that Lansing, Michigan, I don't, I have not been to Lansing, but um, it's near know. here. Yeah, it's near here. I don't know. Oh, we just almost, oh we my almost God. We, our exact location. Oh my gosh. Privacy, sorry. Whoa. So, okay, so we are in the Midwest and not ever, and only moving here a couple years ago to go to school. It's been an interesting, you know, being a coastal person, kind of the stereotypes and assessments of the Midwest, which I think are false. I think just assuming that the Midwest is this very like bland, like middle America, not accepting anything intellectual, not knowing anything artistic 
statistic, I mean, is really false, which is not a surprise. Most assumptions are false. But that's also a myth about the American heartland and yeah. what that represents. And I think that's maybe why they they really like Bachelor and Bachelorettes from that, because it kind of represents the values, like the, the moral values of America or like the, the fiber of America and creating mm-hmm. that myth. Something I was going to say, um, and we can't, even though I know we're going to talk about it, we can't ignore some of the the identities of the women and how that interacts and um, the systems of exotification of some of the women. Two of the women had, quote unquote, hard names to pronounce, and they were women of color. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to get into like critical race theory and like Mm -hmm. explicitly talk about this show as like replicating white supremacy, but it's very... I think someone else like doing the package of um, like packages of the family that like you have to replicate as a Christian sort of, you know, nuclear family that you need to prove your Americanness and you need to prove your do this sort of like performative whiteness, which is, you know, to fit within the structure of The Bachelor, especially with Colton as I mean, he said he grew up in a conservative Christian household. Going back to that in the past, I think her name was Erin was just she kept saying, I'm a typical Southern girl. I'm a Southern girl. And that's kind of her identifier. That's the shortcut. She's the Southern girl. And then we have the some other things like maybe the businesswoman, the bossy woman, the villain, the beauty queen. So they automatically kind of get this signifier placed on them. And I think it's not just this show. I think that's how our brains work. I'm not condoning it. But in our minds, we kind of think about what identifiers are, um, especially for these these parasocial relationships we have with people on television. Something we had talked about, the first impression, Rose, that he gave to, was her name Heidi? It's Hannah, actually. Hannah, okay, close. One of the Hannahs. So (laughs) she... He said to her, this is so it it darks me out. And it also like fascinates me that he said, you remind me of home, which was really interesting because I I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he 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 didn't kiss her. He kissed some of the other women and he seemed to have more of um, more like actual physical chemistry with other women or even better conversations. But of course, like we don't know they cut what they cut. But um, she is, of course, very tiny and very blonde. And it's interesting to see what is home for Colton. It is it's white America. It's white Christian America. And of course, that's not what they, I guess, intend for us to read. But I mean, that's what it is. And so it's interesting to see Hannah, first impression Rose, signifying this ideal mate, this ideal wife. It, Yeah, it is performing whiteness. And it's, I have a feeling like if Colton were asked his type, it's tiny white women who maybe are exhibit more feminine, what would be stereotypically feminine traits. And this being in this situation with more diverse women is him confronting the other and he is some of them he outright rejected but he's trying to find the one that he identifies or make it so his environment is not so othered definitely and it's just it's really telling that he said that um that he in his nervousness like he clung to the familiar which is this performing performing whiteness did he now I'm, I'm making a, a grand generalization but I don't how many women did he kiss did he kiss several I want to say he kissed um three I mean terms or whatever it's all just ideas here <laughs> yeah. so we don't have all of their names yeah I don't know the way he performs intimacy too which is interesting that I mean there's 
was it Chris or someone else that was like, oh, I'm not going to kiss on like the first night or, you know, some bachelors and bachelorettes, I think, have said that, like, I'm not going to kiss on the first night or like, I'm not going to kiss people. And Colton, I mean, he went out of his way to like become intimate with some of these women. And I wonder if that's a reaction to this, you know, this discourse of like his virginity that he feels like he needs to assert his sort of like, like aggressive, like masculinity of like going out there and like, you know, making out with a bunch of women. He said something interesting when somebody asked him about his virginity. They said, was it like a, I think they asked if it was religious or moral. Right. And he said at first, which was another interesting way. Yeah. Because he's also made it clear that he's not a virgin. Like he He's not waiting till marriage. He's not, he's not, it's not a hard and fast rule for him. It's just somebody he loves, which I think is interesting that he, although the show has placed this narrative on him, he's actually kind of fighting against it a little bit. And even though he's sort of agreed to be on the show, he's sort of complicit in this narrative of himself. Going back to, I think we like talked about this a little bit in like our first podcast that um, it's this sort of like redux of like neoconservatism where it's like, oh no, it's it's not marriage. Like we're not that boring. We'll still have sex in like a monogamous long-term relationship, but it still has to be within these like confines of that um, of that neoconservative cultural script. Even though you are dating multiple women, it's like this taste, it's this titillation, this containment theory of of the forbidden. And so, I mean, why not? Like, what is love? Social construct. Right. So we'll see what happens in Singapore. I think that's where they go. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. then they got a bigger budget this year because remember one time they went to like Virginia. No offense, Virginia, but... That was literally the worst thing that I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, that was Caitlin's season, I think. No, they were in Ireland. That was Becca's season. Oh, okay. It was so horrible. Well, that season was real struggle. Also, yeah, well, I guess... I don't know. Are we going on to just like things that kind of personal takes or thoughts on the show, yeah. um, which may or may not be related to critical theory? But I think that they're like wrapping up, I guess, like a structuralist like critique okay. of the show. It's interesting to to translate structuralism to such like a dynamic visual text such as reality television because a lot of I think our our analysis and our inference is it's not textual it's like reading I don't know it's just like this invisible interpretation of of production and of staging but I think that structuralism I guess I don't know is it kind of old is it kind of out I think that there's actually like a lot there that you can look at these patterns and look at these um, different building blocks about what creates this sort of like this myth. Yeah, structuralism, I think, will always be useful. But I don't know if we, as even in the scholarship, is taking like what I would call like old school structuralism directly. I think there's so much so many things built into it. And I think structuralism actually has a piece in a lot of cultural theory that has since and critical theory that has since emerged from it. So I think just like we keep saying like we're going to talk about this in a little bit i have a feeling we're going to go talk about language and structures of, of language in several other episodes yeah so did you want to go on to talk about just anything else from the show you just wanted to to address yeah i guess i have like a treatise to say on cassie who got a package um Which, Ca- okay go ahead, go ahead yeah or- cassie do you remember her she was a speech pathologist oh yeah and grad yeah, student yeah, yeah, yeah. um 
I mean, how did you feel about? I'm I'm just like zeroing in on you, Cassie, because you say you're a grad student and I looked on your LinkedIn um, and you're also in our neck of the woods of the Midwest. So how did like what did you think of her? I was stressed because I'm like, how do you take off that amount of time? I know. Was it maybe it was filmed in the summer? I just institute. Like, I don't know. Like, how did you did your like funding go away? Like, (laughs) what did you say to your advisor? Are you putting it on your CV? You are speech pathologist, Cassie. So I like, did you read De Sassor? Like, how is like, like, why didn't you write in and tell us about how like language is constructed? Like, I feel like if you're, if you're a speech pathologist, right? Like, don't you need to know about like theories of language and communication? I think that's the overlap because when you're talking about linguistics, you're really talking about this neurological system of language that I don't know. I don't know. Write us. Cassie, also, you're like, how she was like play acting therapy with this oh, little girl. Yeah, you did I, not care for that. That was like made me really nervous, Cassie. Like question, is she like your real patient? Like if she's not, what are the ethics of like engaging in like, a, what is it? I don't know exactly. Like is it like linguistic therapy? Like to promote yourself like on The Bachelor? Like there's a lot there. Um, I don't know. That makes me nervous. If you could write in and tell us more about that. And did you get like institutional research board approval on yeah. that? Yeah. Are you IRB approved? I also went on your LinkedIn because it's public. Um, and I have some suggestions that if you are trying to like your summary of yourself should not just have all these dashes or like bullets with like all of the duties you do for your current job like it just looks kind of awkward like I think that you should really change that I mean I think they've already ruined their careers right yeah I don't know what you'll do Cassie but who else struck you like that you remember I like what's her name Christine DJ Agro oh I love oh it's Catherine Catherine I'm obsessed with her she first of all she knows she's on reality TV like people sometimes people that take The Bachelor too seriously really annoy me like do you not know what you're doing like are you maybe you are here to find love but you you know what you signed up for so when somebody first of all i really liked her look because she didn't wear sparkles she had that dress with like it was like a billowy sleeve it was like a cape i don't know i mean it's like everybody loves a villain but she i didn't really do a deep dive into her but like she's a dj in fort lauderdale sorry fort lauderdale it's got a very specific feel her Instagram doesn't have a lot of pictures, but it's it's very interesting in a she way. She brought her she, Pomeranian. She brought it, which you love. That I was like the way palms. to your heart. She's going to be interesting, which is a good segue into our next segment about things you hear in the, on The Bachelor you would also hear in a graduate seminar. Yeah. Um, I don't know who said it. I think it was like Nicole when she was crying about, she was definitely crying a lot, Nicole. She said that the quality of women in this room is through the roof. And that's how I feel about most of my seminars. And I'm sure Nicole feels that way about the women in Bachelor Mansion. I might have actually said that at one point. I mean, yeah, we I we're really lucky. We have a lot of um, women identified cohort members, which um, makes for some really great discussion. Mine is something that you may have overheard in seminar. This is something Catherine said. Mm hmm. I'm sorry if I stepped on toes. I'm sorry if, like, I insulted anyone or I was too aggressive or, as you say, I looked desperate, which is hilarious, by the way. (laughs) I've actually heard someone say that verbatim in a seminar. Wow. Interesting. Like, right after a a presentation? Definitely. Definitely. Definitely not. Um, Colton likes 
like little women who are speaking like the book by Louis May Alcott. It's his favorite. Yeah. Speaking of um, Lauren and Ari got married. Yeah. Lauren is pregnant. I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, there's nothing to say about them. I did find that there she already has an Instagram account for their baby. Oh, my God. Lauren. I mean, I think the baby is going to be just as boring as she is. Definitely. We also saw Becca and Garrett. um, And I thought it was funny that only Becca spoke, that they wouldn't give Garrett the microphone. I mean, he might like spout some racism, racism, transphobia, um, xenophobia. Becca, dump Garrett if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. Oh, well, Daddy Neil Lane was in the audience this time, actually, which was amazing. Can you name any other jewelry designer by name? No. Neil Lane is living his best life. He definitely is. I know. Um, he was in the audience and everybody like cheered for yeah, him. Yeah, he, he's great. Um, well, we do have we do have a viewer question. Oh, yeah. This is a um, viewer question. Yeah. Listener question. Just one. Um, so write in if you have one next time. Um, this is from Britta from Seattle. Um, Thanks, Britta. Yeah. She just wrote in. Um, she wants us to um, talk about the Australian accent. That was her email. So that was the woman who came in with an Australian accent. She said, I heard you like accents. And he said, where are you from? She said, well, the accent. I think it's interesting how I did like how she said the accent is Australian. Yeah, that was I mean, there's obviously like a lot there to like. I thought I mean, I thought it was kind of like a fun thing. They really hyped it up as this kind of this big scandal. I don't know if we're going to see the confrontation of when he finds out she's not Australian. I would love for her to keep up the ruse the whole time. I don't. I think like she dropped it, though, because. Um, he gave her rose and he was like, will you accept this rose? And she was like, oh, she was like, <laughs> she was like, yes, I will. And not like with an Australian accent. So she had to have like come clean at some point during the night. But Colton was like, he was really busy with um, Catherine DJ Agro many yeah. times, which is her right, I guess. Yeah. I think that at the beginning of each episode, they should have to go around and say their research interests um, <laughs> and where they got their, um, their previous degree yeah, from. Their yeah, their previous degree. Um, so, Chris Harrison, you could definitely think about implementing that next time. And do they prefer Zotero or Mantelay or whatever the other one is? Oh, or I don't even know. There's okay. only one, Zotero. Z- okay. We're sponsored. So this podcast <laughs> is brought to you by Zotero. Yeah. Nope, just Zotero. Yeah, just That's Zotero. It. And um, well, so next week, we sort of get into it. There's probably group dates and individual dates. Thank God. Yeah, I know. My favorite part is just around this time, like when it first starts, because I actually find it more boring when the women, when there's less and they just talk about how much they're feeling it and like checking in on each other and like. Yeah, I feel like weeks two to four are generally like the most fun because they're still so next week our syllabus um is everything is linked on our soundcloud we also have a tumblr right that i've been posting links to articles and just other information because soundcloud has limited text options so that (laughs) can i steal you for a sec dot tumblr.com if you have any questions about structuralism or the episodes or you want um, us to talk about anything or if you have any like suggestions for like articles or books you can email us bachelor critical theory at gmail at gmail of course yeah that's how to get in touch but i guess talk to you guys soon oh and next week is performance theory thank you